You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open Holy Scripture to the readings this afternoon. These readings come in connection with the Canons of Dort, chapter 3-4, articles 4-6. through six. First of all, we read from the Old Testament, from the book of Ezekiel. We'll read chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, Can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. And he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army, And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. We also turn to the New Testament where we'll read from the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship 
to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, 
strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This afternoon we continue with our series of sermons on the canons of Dort. This afternoon we come to chapter 3-4, articles 4-6. through And here the church summarizes the truth of Scripture. Article 4, the inadequacy of the light of nature. To be sure, there is left in man after the fall some light of nature, whereby he retains some notions about God, about natural things, and about the difference between what is honorable and shameful, and shows some regard for virtue and outward order. But so far is he from arriving at the saving knowledge of God and true conversion through this light of nature that he does not even use it properly in natural and civil matters. Rather, whatever this light may be, man wholly pollutes it in various ways and suppresses it by his wickedness. In doing so, he renders himself without excuse before God. Article 5, the inadequacy of the law. What holds for the light of nature also applies to the Ten Commandments given by God through Moses, particularly to the Jews. For though it reveals the greatness of sin and more and more convicts man of his guilt, yet it neither points out a remedy nor gives him power to rise out of this misery. Rather, weakened by the flesh, it leaves the transgressor under the curse. Man cannot, therefore, through the law, obtain saving grace. Then Article 6, the need for the gospel. What, therefore, neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God performs by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or ministry of reconciliation which is the gospel of the Messiah, by which it has pleased God to save men who believe, both under the old and under the new dispensation. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, spring is in the air. I'm sure we've all noticed it. The leaves are green on the trees. There are lots of blossoms and flowers all around us. In fact, as you're driving along the, the road here in front of the church, you probably saw all the blossoms on the road from uh, from the trees. We have got sunny, warm days and, and there's lots of growth all around us. We could say that springtime is a time of renewal and life. Whenever I think about spring, I can't help but think about the Holy Spirit. And that's partly because the Nicene Creed calls Him the Lord and Giver of life. Now we don't often think about the Holy Spirit in those terms, but yet... That's what we confess. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. Now, first of all, that's a reference to the physical realm. All life in creation is rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit in some sense. When spring is sprung, 
The Holy Spirit is working to bring new life into creation. Psalm 104, verse 30 says it, When you send your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Of course, there's also another more specialized sense in which the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. We confess that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us our spiritual life. It's through His work that blood flows through every person's veins and arteries, through every creature, in fact. But it's also through His work that sinful people are transformed into children of God. Through His work alone. And maybe you hear this and you say, well, yeah, of course. You can say that, but we have to realize that this concept has not always been universally accepted in the church. In the 17th century and also today, there are people who say, yeah, sure, the Holy Spirit does it. But He does it by cooperating with the free will of man. The Holy Spirit does His part, man does his part, and so we're saved. And so the Arminians, past and present, would agree that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. But they would not agree that it is the Holy Spirit alone who gives that life. And that's where the canons of Dort are going in the articles we're looking at this afternoon. When we turn to Article 4, right away we're faced with some language with which we might not be familiar Words and expressions are used in this article that we don't really find elsewhere in our confessions or in Scripture. However, the concept, and that's what's important, the concept is definitely there. If it's not in our confessions, then it's definitely in the Bible. I'm talking here about the concept of the light of nature. Let's first of all define what it is we're talking about. The light of nature has gone by a number of different terms through through history. Some have called it the seed of religion. They had a Latin name for it, but don't worry about that. Others have called it the sense of God. So we've got light of nature, seed of religion, sense of God. Whatever you might call it, it amounts to something that all people share. All people have some idea about who the true God is. All people, whether they're Christians or not, doesn't matter. All people have some idea about what's right and what's wrong. But this idea is very vague. Somebody once compared the light of nature to a footprint. Now, if you go to the beach, say you go to Crescent Beach or go to White Rock, wherever, and you go to the beach and you see a footprint in the sand, well, it tells you a little bit about the person who left it. It might tell you if the person was an adult or a child. It might tell you if the person was heavy set or of slight build. Perhaps it might tell you some other things too. But a, a footprint will not tell you a person's life story. A footprint's not going to tell you what it's like to, to really know this person. What it's like to have a, a relationship with this person. That's what the light of nature is like. Now the Bible passage that speaks the most about this is, is Romans 1, 18 and following. 
From this passage, we learn at least four basic truths. Number one, ever since the creation of the world, people have known about God's invisible qualities. God has made this plain to them. He has revealed it. And those invisible qualities are defined in verse 20 as being His eternal power and His divine nature. Put it another way, all people know that there is a God, a God who has sovereign power over creation. That's the first thing. The second thing we learn in Romans 1 is that all people know that there is a God who will judge them. Verses 29 to 31 give us a rundown of how wicked people can be. It's a pretty ugly list. And then verse 32 tells us, although they knew, know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They know that there is a divine judge. They know what His sentence is upon their actions. But they simply carry on not caring about the ultimate consequences. Pretending that those ultimate consequences are not really there. Living in denial. That's the next truth we find there in Romans 1. Namely that God says that the unregenerate people suppress the truth which they know in their heart of hearts. They put it down. Verse 18 says that they suppress the truth by their wickedness. While they know that God is there and they know that He will judge, they stand around like people who, who put their fingers in their ears and they say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, and you're not really there. They're self-deceived. Finally, the Spirit says that God gives such people over to their wickedness. They're sinful in their suppression of the truth. They're sinful in refusing to acknowledge God. But then they go from bad to worse. God gives them over and He abandons them to to sexual impurity, including and especially homosexual behavior. He abandons them to idolatry and to every kind of wickedness. When people reject God, when people suppress the truth about Him, they're on the highway to hell and their lives show it. Now the Arminians also recognized this concept of the light of nature. But they twisted it. They twisted it so that it became something positive for them. They made it into something that could contribute to one's salvation. Help you along. They lifted it out of its proper context in Romans 1 and they argued that man could use this innate knowledge of God that he has and with a little bit of help he could climb his way back up to the Creator. Pull himself up by the bootstraps. As part of that, they called it common grace. They changed the name. And by calling it common grace, if you asked an Arminian, so is salvation by grace? And so, oh yeah, salvation is by grace. In this, you can see that the Arminians were masters at redefining terms. And so they confused the matter. However, the Synod of Dort knew what was going on. They were aware of this Arminian strategy of redefining terms. 
They knew the games the Arminians played with language and theology. And so Article 4 states it very clearly. We confess from Scripture that there is some light of nature. And whatever you might want to call it, it's there. But it does not by any means lead to a saving knowledge of God. It does not lead to true conversion to Christ. It's completely inadequate for those things. Instead, the light of nature is designed for one purpose according to Romans 1. That's to condemn man. To leave him without excuse. This part of Article 4 is taken directly from Romans 1 verse 20. You know, in the Arminian way of thinking, this light of nature becomes like a, a human arm lifting man up to God. But in Romans 1 verse 20, and in the canons, it's like a divine finger pointing at man to accuse him. It leaves him without excuse. Literally, it says that it leaves man without an apologetic, without a defense. You know, and that's a truth that we can work with in our lives as we encounter unbelievers. That has to do with apologetics, something we heard about a couple weeks ago. Apologetics, as you may remember, is the defense of the faith. You know, there is a, a system of apologetics out there. A system which teaches that man's problem is that he simply doesn't have enough information. Unbelieving man, this system says, is neutral with respect to God. He, he just needs more evidence. You need to, to fill in, fill him in. And then, once you give him the, the evidence and the information he needs yet, then he will accept the existence of God and his claims. Once the unbeliever is given the evidence and once he's uh, really understood what the evidence is saying, then he'll give in to the call of the gospel and become a Christian. Well, that flies in the face of what we, we read in Romans 1 about unbelieving man. Unbelieving man has been given important information. In the heart of hearts, he knows that there is a God. He knows that he will be judged but unbelieving man decides, deliberately decides to suppress his knowledge. He adds insult to injury. And so what do we do as believers? Well, we have to present the Gospel. We have to tell them about Christ. Because the light of nature says nothing about a Redeemer. And then we have to also gently and lovingly, winsomely challenge unbelievers to repentance with the truth of God's Word. key thing to remember is that unbelievers are not neutral about the claims of the Gospel. You see, it's not a lack of information that's the real problem. It's rebellion. It's not innocent ignorance. It's self-willed idolatry. Worshipping the creature rather than the Creator. What holds true for the light of nature also holds true for the law. The law of God is also an inadequate means for, by which man can make his way back to fellowship with God. You know, while we may think it's clear enough, it needs to be repeatedly said that no one is going to measure up 
No one is going to measure up to God's expectations by doing stuff. Now you might notice that Article 5 has the, the title, The Inadequacy of the Law. And the canons quickly make it clear that what meant, what's meant with the law is the Ten Commandments. And you know, that's definitely one way in which the Bible uses the expression, the law. But it's not the only way. In Psalm 19, for instance, we read about the law of the Lord being good and, and pure and so on. Psalm 119 would be another example. In, in Psalm 19, the expression law of God is being used as a synonym for God's Word in general, including the promises of the Gospel. But here in Article 5, we're, we're clearly dealing with that very little but very important part of the Bible that we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have a number of different uses in the life of a Christian. Article 5 mentions one of the most important ones. The law functions in a negative way to show the greatness of sin and to convict man of his guilt before God. Romans 3.20 says that through the law we become conscious of sin. The law is a means by which people are humbled before God. Now in the story of the Christian life, this use is there in the process of initial regeneration when one first becomes a believer. But it's also there as the Christian life continues. The law is there. We, we hear it read every Sunday morning. And as we listen to it carefully, as we ought to, it drives us on our knees before God in humility. It drives us to Christ. That's the thought of Paul in Galatians 5.24. As the law points out the greatness of our sin and our guilt before God, we're led, we're driven to Christ. And so the law has this negative use, but it also has a positive use. As we live in Christ by faith, our lives also more and more reflect Christ in us. Increasingly, we show our thankfulness and love for God by living according to His will for us, by the working of the Holy Spirit. We see this also, this work of sanctification as Christ graciously active in us and for us. And the will of Christ for our lives is laid out most clearly in the Ten Commandments. And in this way, the law is part of our sanctification, our growing in holiness, the process of becoming the people God wants us to be. Having said that, the law cannot bring someone to reconciliation with God. Works of the law will make absolutely nobody right with God in any capacity. The Arminians beg to differ. The Arminians of the 17th century believed that unregenerate man was able to be obedient to God's law in a small measure. Maybe not fully, maybe not entirely consistently, but there was a certain measure that man could do. And they said that after the fall into sin, people still have a natural ability to do enough good to win God's favor, to earn merit with God. And so the Arminians regarded the law as a means by which man can 
climb his way up to conversion and salvation. In the face of this false teaching, we should see that the Scriptures are clear. Romans 3.28 is clear. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Galatians 3.11 says it too. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Isaiah 64.6, clear too. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, the things that we think that we do are so good, they're like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and all, and like the wind, our, sw- our sins sweep us away. No, brothers and sisters, the law and our obedience to the law can never save us. Unlike other world religions, the Christian faith is not one of works, righteousness. The faith of the Bible is not about a performance orientation. You're doing this and doing that and the other thing and then God will accept us and take us to be His children. That's nothing new. You've heard it many times. And at a certain level, we know it, don't we? But we also need to wholeheartedly embrace it. Believe it. Live it. The only way to God is through the gracious action of God in our hearts and lives. And that's the point there in Article 6, the last article we're looking at today. And we can isolate the key in this article by honing in on two words in the second line. Two words right kind of in the middle of the page. God performs. The light of nature can't do it. The law can't do it. But God performs. Not in the sense of acting on a, on a stage or in a movie, but in the sense of carrying out an action. God is the one who does what nothing and no one else can do. It's all about the God of grace and His sovereign power. And what is it that God performs? Now to answer that, we can look back to the summary of scriptural teaching in Article 3 of this chapter. At the end of that article, it speaks about returning to God. It also speaks about having a personal reformation of one's nature, depraved nature, and both the uh, preparation for that reformation and the reformation itself. Man is totally unable to do this, whether by himself, by the light of nature, or by the law. Man is helpless. Only God can perform these actions. Only God can bring man back to himself. Only God can breathe life into the spiritually dead and give them the life that lasts forever. A life the way that it was meant to be lived, except even more grand and more glorious. And the question arises of how exactly God does this. Well, God acts in a personal way through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the Word and applies it to the elect. And so they're saved from the wrath of God. This is especially pointing to the official preaching of the Word by Christ's ambassadors. That's why Article 5 speaks about the ministry of reconciliation. 
through the preaching of the Word, we hear the Gospel, we believe the Gospel, and we are brought back into fellowship with God. We have a relationship with Him. One in which we can experience something of the give and take of any other human relationship. And so the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the Word in a powerful way. Now interestingly, in our reading from Romans 1, Paul makes the point that not even the inerrant written Word of God can compare with the powerful preaching of the Gospel. It wasn't enough for Paul to write to the Romans. He wanted to be there face to face so that he could preach to them, so that the Holy Spirit could work in an even more powerful way. You see, there's a reason why another early Reformed symbol called the Second Helvetic Confession said in one place, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And the power of the Spirit working through the Word preached is also clear in that passage we read from Ezekiel 37. In that well-known chapter, God commands Ezekiel to preach to the valley of dry bones. When Ezekiel prophesied, when he preached as he was commanded to do, things started happening. But still, there was no life. It was only when the Holy Spirit came. That says breath in the NIV, but the, the the word that's translated there as breath can also be translated as spirit. When the Holy Spirit came, life came into the dry bones. The Spirit and the Word worked together to bring life. Now there are a lot of different things that we can, we can take from that passage of Scripture. It's very rich. But for our purposes this afternoon, the important thing is that God the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life. Preaching by itself does nothing. Only the Spirit can give us life. And He does it through the means of the Word. Article 6 concludes by telling us that this is the way that people have always been saved. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's this way in the New Testament as well. And brothers and sisters, that's an important truth to realize. Maybe more relevant than, than you may know. Because there's a false teaching in some Christian circles that says that God will save the Jews in a way that's different from the way that He saves Christians. There's some preachers, especially TV and radio preachers, who will tell you that the Jews of the past, present, and future, the Jews are saved by following the law. But Christians? Well, they're saved by faith in Christ. You know, if we believe what God says in Galatians 3, then that view is wrong. Abraham, the father of the Jews, was justified by faith in the promises. Now somebody might say, well, you know, he couldn't have been justified by the law because the law didn't come until 430 years later. Abraham was saved by the means of faith. That faith was created by the Spirit working with the Word. That's the way God has always saved people, and this is the way He always will save people. And the result is that God will always get the glory. And so what do we take from this for ourselves today? 
Well, brothers and sisters, let's never forget the enormous value and power of preaching. A personal Bible study is important. Daily family worship is important. Group Bible study is important. All of these things are important and valuable and God works through them in our lives. But not one of those things compares to the power of preaching. Faithful preaching of the Word is the most powerful instrument that God has and uses in our lives. And so when believers take a poor attitude to preaching and they don't value it or don't respect it as the Word of God, they're hurting themselves spiritually. Dissing the preaching is like having a spiritual death wish. We ought to value preaching as the sharpest and the most powerful tool that the Holy Spirit has at His disposal. Somebody once said that a deaf church is a dead church. The church that truly hears and receives the preaching as the Word of God for what it really is. That church will be blessed by the Holy Spirit with abundant spiritual life and growth. As we're going to see further on in this series, the original purpose of the Canons of Dort was not merely to expose and, and to refute the errors of the Arminians. The purpose was also to inspire in God's people a heart for worshiping Him. And this afternoon, the truth of God's Word leads us to praise the Holy Spirit for what He does in our lives. The Athanasian Creed compels believers to praise and worship the Holy Spirit along with the two other persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have together saved us. It's the Gospel. And the Gospel inspires us to sing. And so, let's praise the Holy Spirit, the One who gave us the Word of God, the One who also worked faith in our hearts through the preaching of that Word. He alone gives life. Praise Him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.